calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Welcome. You've got a digital folklore. Previously on Digital Folklore. The meme enthusiast mega expo. We sign up as speakers. And what would we talk That's about? It's all just detail. Man, I thought this would be easier. We have about 12 hours and we have to be at the convention center. Did you decide what you're presenting on? We're going to talk about Goncharov. There's already a Goncharov panel at noon. No. We're just going to have to wing it. On virtually no sleep. Sounds like it. Mason Amadeus. And this is Digital Folklore. We made it. Better late than never. Ah, we're fine. It's gonna be a long day. Yeah, but it is cutting it close. Well, no matter what happens, we're here now. If you sign up to participate in the 5K Naruto run, the pre-race assembly starts in 15 minutes in the Shrek Islam Pavilion. This is wild. These guys really went all out. Excuse me. Uh, uh yes, hello. One does not simply walk into Meme Expo without a badge. Oh, right, right, um, right. They should be under 8th layer media. Okay, Perry yep. and Mason. That's us. I see what you did there. Uh, oh, no, that, that, that's not on purpose. Those are just our names. Yeah, everyone points out that Perry Mason is a thing, but that wasn't intentional. Mm, press X to doubt. <laughs> All right, here you go. Badges, schedules, 
And just so you know, it's almost Morbin time. So if you wanted to make it for that, that's in West Ballroom C. You're gonna go up those stairs and all the way to the left. Good turnout, huh? This place is packed. Oh yeah, it slaps hood. This bad boy can fit so much meme in it. Attendance this year is over 9,000! Hey, um, if we just wanted to like, uh, talk to some people, where, where should we go? Oh, then you'll want to hit up the vendor floor. It's free real estate. Um, thanks. Next to the going to like Arthur's angry fists that you can put your... I don't think I've ever seen this much copyright infringement in one place. That's not on the internet. Is is that bouncer wearing an ever given boat shirt? I don't get it. What's the ever given boat? You're that that container ship that blocked the Suez Canal. Oh, no, that's that's wicked funny. Um, so are, are we headed straight for the vendor floor? Also, where do we have to be for our thing? Um, we're we're right after. Uh, Dada, the evolution of dad humor with the advent of Facebook. Nice. Um, that's in, uh, we're, we're going to be in meeting room 210, which apparently is right behind the Can Has Cheeseburger Cafe. Ooh, if we have time after, I really want to go to that uh, that NPC walk stand ambience event. I bet that's going to be um, surreal. I think we should head to the vendor floor first. Here's, here's what I'm thinking. Maybe as we're scouting it out, we can find somebody to do the presentation with us, and then we just sort of keep them moving, let them be the expert type of thing. That is what I would call pulling a digital folklore. That's a good idea. It's this way. <laughs> Did you see that? They have a Tamagotchi daycare. Really? I thought those went away ages ago. Oh, dude, no. A new line of Tamagotchi just came out in July of this year. Oh, thank God. It's a bit quieter in here. All right. Yeah. Um, keep an eye out for anyone who looks like they might. Whoa, look at that. Now that is an elaborate setup. That booth is straight out of a cyberpunk synthwave music video. Whoever that is, we've got to go talk to them. What's it say? Um... Digital Void. Let's go see what they're about. All right. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for stopping by. Hey, how's it going? Hey! Hey! Cool booth! Thanks. We put a lot of work into it. I'm glad you like it. Digital Void. Yeah, that's us. What is Digital Void? So, Digital Void produces podcasts. We produce live events and gatherings in New York City. We have upcoming shows in London. We've run in D.C. And our festivals focus on the intersection of digital culture, media, tech, and how it influences the world. Because we believe that our experiences online are isolated and oftentimes taken out of context. And the ability to gather in person, to have conversations with, and to listen to experts about this, to share lived experiences, is one of the most meaningful and powerful things that we can do to help form resilient strategies and create meaning from experiences that are otherwise very difficult to make meaning out of. We've had a wide array of speakers, dozens of speakers on our stage, and those speakers range from authors to journalists to academics to comedians. And they bring their lived experiences and research to the stage in order to speak to a wide audience, because oftentimes in our space, 
information is safeguarded. It is kept behind paywalls or it is made inaccessible through existing structures, whether it be graduate level seminars or colleges in general, which have barriers to entry for the general public, or whether it be pricey conferences, which can oftentimes run two, three, four hundred dollars for the general public. So our work is focused on making information and learning accessible. So our events are typically free or low cost. And we make sure that people have an opportunity to socialize, to find community and people that make them realize that their experiences online are actually shared. Yeah. Cool. I love that. Um, Since what we're focusing on today is primarily memes, I'm curious how you would define what a meme is. Because it's the kind of thing like, we all know what a meme is when you see it, right? But as someone who's studied them, what's, what's your definition of a meme? So there's two different camps of memes. The first camp of meme is related to, but not exactly our current understanding. So in the 1970s, Richard Dawkins famously coins the term meme. And I I don't always love to take this historical deep dive into memes because it can seem recursive to go back to step one. But I think that there's an important lineage that can be told succinctly when it comes to Dawkins and evolution. So he defines memes as a unit of cultural production. And so at the time, the internet or the web as we know it, it does not exist in the way that we know it. So in 1996, Dancing Baby becomes the first internet graphical meme that is spread. So this is 20 years before that. But the idea or the subtext of Dawkins' work is that genes are selfish, right? And their entire goal is to reproduce. So he applies that model to memes, which is a play of the word meme or to imitate. And so The idea is that memes are units of culture and they compete for space and dominance in other people. And so that kind of mimetic understanding or ideology tends to subvert human autonomy and agency. The idea that humans are just a vessel for these ideas to spread in a way that is similar to genes. And I think that's really undermining to any contemporary understanding of memes. So we get to the early 2000s and we get to a brilliant professor, Lamar Schiffman, who has a bit of a different definition of memes and one that I tend to subscribe to. So Lamar Schiffman in her book, Memes in Digital Culture, outlines memes to be three things. They are a group of digital items that share common characteristics of form, content, or stance. They are created with an awareness of each other. So someone making a meme knows that they are remixing a meme or they are speaking to a community. And when they are circulated, there is an intentional in-group and out-group. So it is both intentionally niche as well as exclusionary. And so that's my understanding of a meme. Yeah. I, I love that you mentioned the uh, Lamore Shipman book because that's that's an older book. I think that came out like in 2012 or something. And it was one of the really first um compilations of research that went into that and talked about virality and everything else. One of the interesting things, though, when we start to break it down from an objective, almost scientific point of view, all of that makes sense. We have to also realize that when the person does it, all of that intention is very subconscious. You're not necessarily saying, 
I'm going to take a unit of culture that's understood by one group of people, and I'm going to now select an impact font, um, put that over there, and intentionally create an in-group and out-group, and add a little bit of humor, <laughs> and thereby I shall create internet chaos. <laughs> I don't know that it, that anybody really thinks about it that way. There's just something inherently human about the process of knowing how to do that. Yeah, this is being done subconsciously. Unless you are in a war room or a political strategist or a corporate person, then you're not thinking about how to make uh, an in-group or an out-group or how to target one community. And I think there are more case studies of failures than successes in that, right? And I think when you look at some of the more successful cases of how memetic campaigns take off, you can ask people working in companies how it happened and they will tell you themselves that these are things that they hope can happen, but they can never manufacture or curate. When McDonald's was creating the Grimace campaign mm. it, that went famously viral in June, they did not know it was going to go viral. They created a campaign. And then once they saw the mimetic energy, they leaned into it. They tried to enable or empower creators, but they didn't say, how do we earn a hundred billion TikTok impressions, <laughs> right? It happens organically. You see that again with Barbenheimer, right? Where there was a ton of money and marketing poured into a campaign, but no amount of money can make a community be receptive to messaging, right? And in fact, there's always an inflection point where the energy can be zapped and around the time of Barbie's release, I think it was really interesting to see some of the critical feedback to politicians trying to use the Barbenheimer aesthetics. And that's when a lot of people said, all right, the joke's over. You know, this is no longer fun. Yeah. So I think it's, it's interesting to see even the most cunning and smart people cannot make something go viral or create genuine enthusiasm or community around these topics. But the smallest accident can make uh, something take off. Yeah. Hey, listeners, if you're like me and enjoy escaping to a real movie theater, then Regal Unlimited just makes sense. It's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. You can see any standard 2D movie anytime with no blackout dates or restrictions. And your membership lets you get into premium format shows like IMAX and 4DX at a reduced cost. Plus, you'll save 10% on all non-alcoholic concessions. Regal Unlimited. It's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. So, if you're planning on seeing a couple movies this month, join Regal Unlimited. Now is the best time as summer's coming up. Sign up now in the Regal app or on the website at regmovies.com unlimited. And be sure to use the code FOLKLORE24 to get 10% off a three-month subscription. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. 
It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. The smallest accident can make uh, something take off. Yeah. I, th I think there's something interesting to the phenomenon you just described, because I, we see it in other things as well. When someone who is in the out group of something starts participating or co-opting something, it's not cool anymore. Not cool, Grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder how that ties into ideas of identity and community, because suddenly you're like, oh, that's lame. It's like whenever I say uh, dope in front of my youngest sister, she's like, oh, you're so old and cringe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that goes back to Perry's point, where there are in groups and out groups. And I think every generation has an aesthetic sensibility. They have language, ticks, different methods of communication in order to try to communicate and make sense. And those are basically their benchmarks, right? Um, especially intergenerationally, though, we're getting into a strange space online because language itself is evolving in ways that never had to evolve in this way in the past. So I, I would like to draw attention to two great scholars, uh, Lisa Nakamura and Alondra Nelson did a lot of great work about identity on the internet in the early 90s. Uh, and Charlton McElwain speaks about this in his book, Black Software, which is just absolutely brilliant. McElwain dives into a graduating class at MIT. I believe it was 99.5% white. And so the internet was designed with a very specific type of group that had the largest amount of input. And that created a necessary outgroup. Scholars like Nelson and Nakamura speak about early case studies of gaming, identity, and community. Uh, the idea is that on the internet, the assumption is that everyone at the time was a white male. That never really leaves the internet, right? The idea that the, these systems and these structures were built for and by a certain uh, demographic. And so, especially when we're speaking about community at large, it would be remiss of me not to call attention to the fact that these spaces uh, promote a ton of harm in uh, specifically Twitter or X or Meta or LinkedIn. How do you elevate voices so that these structures can be more kind to different communities? I, I, I say that on a day where there's a lot of controversy on X because there are anti-Semitic um, trends that are the top trending topics. And so not to take it away from memes, but when we're speaking about community and these digital spaces, it's really important to realize that the effects of these campaigns oftentimes disproportionately affect and harm those who are not well represented in these spaces. Yeah. And I think within the context of talking about memes, that also brings up that memes in a way that kind of folkloric informal communication is a way a lot of the time for groups that are disadvantaged to find community, find each other, signal to each other uh, their identities, their intentions, and and where they are. Mm. Yes, it's it's definitely a way. I mean, dog whistles can be used in multiple ways, right? Right. Right. It is really interesting to see how groups can use language and memes to be both subversive as well as uh, for empowerment. I mean, going back a decade, uh, Twitter really takes off around the time of the Arab Spring, right? That launches it into the political and, and spotlight and becomes a global breeding ground for news and attention to derive. Uh, that evolves into more recently 
people developing language to communicate around algorithmic censorship in ways that may or may not be um, empowering for people and creators. And I think the thing that I would feel comfortable speaking to is AlgoSpeak, which became popular a year or two ago on TikTok. Mm -hmm. And I think the really interesting thing about AlgoSpeak or the practice of creating language that intentionally subverts algorithmic blocking. Yeah, like filtering and yeah, censorship. Is that is that like people saying unalived instead of killed, things like that? Yes. So unalived instead of suicide or killed. Uh, there was a time when TikTok was suppressing LGBTQ as an acronym. So the language was leg booty community. So there are very interesting ways that uh, communities learn to bypass uh, algorithmic censorship or suppression um, through evolving language. And that, in a sense, is mimetic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One of the interesting things that I've seen on the internet is when a group of people are using a meme or some kind of characterization of somebody, and then that gets accepted by the people that they're actually trying to weaponize that against and then reflected back. Um, I'm thinking specifically about with Biden um, and the kind of the Brandon uh, content and then that being kind of spun back in the dark Brandon persona. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So this is a really interesting case study because in 2021, in summer 2021, NASCAR driver Brandon Brown is racing and the crowd starts chanting, F Joe Biden. And the F Joe Biden chant is misinterpreted as by the announcer as let's go Brandon, because the announcer either deliberately or not tries to channel that energy toward the race. And so that becomes a viral clip, tens of millions of views. And so let's go Brandon becomes a meme for F Joe Biden. And it takes off to a degree that is uh, really rare, actually, in that space to that point. So it becomes commodified fairly quickly. Let's go Brandon hats, uh, merchandise. There was a, sh uh, a store that sold all Let's Go Brandon merchandise in the Carolinas that opened up. And so you see how this meme evolved really quickly. There were songs produced about it. But Let's Go Brandon remains a mimetic trend uh, firmly in the right-wing camp for roughly a year. However, in August 2022, a piece of a Chinese anti-Biden propaganda that was created to make Joe Biden look like an authoritarian begins to spread. And there's this image of Biden sitting on a throne with laser eyes. And this is viewed as entirely badass by a lot of people in the United States. And so Chris Murphy, a, a representative from Connecticut, tweets out the image of Biden with laser eyes. And so laser eyes in the United States and in the West is typically associated with a based nature of memes. So that was actually associated with a more extreme ideology previous to this. So people with laser eyes would be viewed as doing something incredibly raw, right? Which is uh, what based means. So uh, typically it had been associated with um, far-right figures, Elon Musk, Donald Trump. Laser eyes would be used in that way. And so the meme begins to evolve and let's go Brandon turns into dark Brandon. And so dark Brandon is used as a way to communicate that Biden is leveling up or whenever he has a success, it's viewed as an empowering term. And so this kind of 
wanders into grim territory because it is closely associated with the assassination of Shinzo Abe and gas prices lowering and uh, COVID restrictions being lifted and um, the moment when Al-Zawahari was killed overseas. So all of these like consecutive string of real-life political victories for Biden happen. He begins becoming more closely associated with the laser eyes as well as the darker aesthetic. And so this evolves into later summer 2022. Joe Biden begins becoming associated with Star Wars, everything from Joby One Kenobi to the real apex of this trend, which happened when he delivered a speech in front of the White House. And it was clear at this time that his team had learned of the Dark Brandon trend And so he's photographed with both of his fists in the air, looking victorious with this dark red background. And that becomes the meme format. And so he delivers a speech and it was billed as a battle for the soul of the nation. And so he delivers this speech at a moment of particular animus and all of a sudden, all of the memes that had uh, been associated with Joe Biden from a right-wing perspective, from criticisms of his uh, plan to hire 87,000 new IRS agents, become rallying cries. They're co-opted. So one popular tweet read, Dark Lord Brandon addressing his army of 87,000 IRS agents, circa 2022, as if it were in a textbook. (laughs) Another one imitated Star Wars, which was another closely associated meme. So Star Wars, The Rise of Brandon, coming November 2022 to Disney+. Plus. Another one uh, really commented to the strength of this, somehow you just make him look cooler every time that they tried to make him look lame. And so I think the message with Dark Brandon is that once a meme is in the public consciousness and once it is popular enough, it can always be co-opted and it you have no control over that meme any longer. It does not belong to anybody. It belongs to the public. And I think it's interesting how that ties into sometimes when something is co-opted, it is just suddenly not cool and falls out of favor. But sometimes something is co-opted, is co-opted so successfully that it entirely changes identity. Yes. And in the last few years, you have everything from uh, the Dark Brandon meme to the Pepe evolution to the evolution of of the Vaporwave aesthetic Mm -hmm. to the Morbius meme. There is no control over how a meme will spread, how it will be used, and any effort to really begin to control this, especially within a community, is usually met with such severe pushback that all efforts have to be dropped. Yep. And mitigation efforts must commence. There's <laughs> actually, I was having a discussion recently with a friend because we were digging through all of our old stuff that we have online and talking about how cringe it was. And one of the ways to put it that struck me that I, I wonder how you feel about it is it's like a perceived lack of self-awareness on the part of the subject. Whether there actually is a lack of self-awareness, it's just you feel like they're not being self-aware and that's embarrassing. Yes. And I think it's interesting to note the self-awareness thing because That which often is cringe one day is not cringe later. We're in the middle of a jorts revival. And I know that's not necessarily (laughs) an internet meme. I've never heard it put that way, but I love jorts revival as a pair of words next to each other. (laughs) At the moment, 
in the early 2000s, they were not cringe and then they became cringe and now they are not cringe again. And so I think it's almost a fool's errand to try to lean into uh, cringe trends. Although my favorite case study from the last few years is um, Morbin Time and the Summer of Morbius. Yeah. Oh, and so much so that they made a sequel. <laughs> well, I, it's so interesting because the movie bombed, right? So for those who are not aware of Morbius, Sony released Morbius in the summer of 2022 starring Jared Leto. Because of the film's, um, let's say, lack of uh, artistic quality, the film bombed at the box office, but it was deeply made fun of in part because of Jared Leto. And and so memes began to emerge. It's Morbin time being a common catchphrase, but it stayed in the public consciousness for several weeks. Unfortunately, Sony did not pick up on the fact that this was ironic enthusiasm or participation <laughs> and decided to re-release the film in theaters to bomb a second time in the same summer. And so you look at a case study like that, and I think that is the ultimate call, right? The call is for how do we understand what is ironic versus genuine? How do we understand an in-group versus an out-group? How do we understand each other at this moment? And the answer is through diversity and representation and inclusion, right? There is no way to understand how these systems work and how to create meaning out of them without having multiple voices, perspectives, and disciplines in these rooms. That is an amazing point to make and really well put. I love that. Yeah, I think so. Thank you. I, I think oftentimes you can envisage this room of decision makers, and I think you've seen it recently with X, that a lot of times it can feel like the decisions being made that impact and influence millions of people are just gut instincts, right? That mm -hmm. the decisions that are being made are not being made with um, community or trust and safety support or standards across the board. And those influence people, whether it be on the brand or studio side or the social media platform side. And it, it all comes down to the social element of this, right? Humans are social creatures. We are trying to make sense and meaning of an incredibly new technology, less than a century old, you know, barely more than a half century old. And this is a part of a grand experiment. That is such an excellent way to put that. Um, thanks for taking so much time to chat with us, Josh. You are an absolute goldmine of information. Uh, and I'm going to have to go and binge basically everything that Digital Void has ever put out. Thank you. And I, I would just like to say how deeply I admire the work that both of you do. I think that the work you do is incredibly important. You're platforming great voices. You're telling great stories. And this is an absolutely wonderful convention. I'm glad you visited my booth. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. We love the booth. What are you up to for the rest of the convention? F funny you ask, actually. Um, Perry booked us a speaking slot. Oh, cool. Yeah, except we don't have anything prepared. That's not exactly true. Um, we do have some ideas. Yeah, I don't know if winging it really counts as an idea, but... When is the talk? In, like, less than half an hour. Yikes. I don't suppose you'd be interested in joining us for it. We could sort of do a redo of what we just did, like continue that conversation, do it as an interview from the stage. That would be fun, but I'm kind of tied to the booth for the day. We've got some events planned right here on the vendor floor, and I've got to be here for them. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, no, no worries. Kind of a long shot. Yeah, that's okay. I think we can figure it out. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us, though, Josh. That was awesome. Here, take a few of my cards. Cool. Thank you. Thanks. See you later, Josh. Good luck with the talk. Right. Okay. Um, we are really cutting it close now. Yeah, it's really a shame we couldn't steal Josh. 
Yeah. Um, okay. Let's take a lap around the vendor floor and look for anyone that's got books or hey, pamphlets. Hey, or... you two. You look discerning. Could I potentially interest you in some extremely rare and valuable means? No, no thanks. We're okay. Ah, I see you're a man of culture as well. Well, I do no, have I'm, a I'm really special not. stash. Deep fried. Uh, no, no, that's fine. I'm really all right. I don't offer these to just anybody you know. Actually... Terry, don't. How would you feel about coming on stage with us and doing an interview about the meme economy? Oh, okay. Right. An interview, huh? Yeah, I mean, we could even show off some of your rare memes How stupid do you think I am, Nark? What? You think I'm going to get up on stage and show everyone I'm carrying around this kind of value? I, I don't... Nice try, Nark! You think you're so smart, I am Narky so Narky genuinely Narky Narky confused. Narky. You're not even a good Nark. A good Nark would try to surprise me, but you're just gonna They're come really still going, huh? Narky. Why do they keep calling us Narks? Watch I don't... out for the Nark squad, everyone! I don't understand. Narky's I honestly Narky. don't think they do either. I wouldn't worry about it. I'm a Narky. Watch out. I'm knocking here. That's what you would say if you were... I didn't think anyone actually took meme trading that seriously. I mean, ever since the GameStop thing with the stocks, there is a subculture of actual stock trading based on memes. No, I, I know that meme stocks are a thing, but that guy is just carrying around a bunch of printed out JPEGs stapled to the inside of his coat. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. I don't know if he's just way too deep in the sauce or if he's really committed to the cosplay. <sighs> I do think that actual meme stocks are pretty fascinating, though. Like, there's, there's part of me that loves how it's ordinary people infiltrating and disrupting something that's traditionally territory of, like, rich and powerful folks. Although a lot of that subculture is problematic. Hey, um, look. The what? sign. Where? It's, it says, meme expert, ask me anything. Where? I don't see... Just to the right of the shocked Pikachu Fortnite dance clinic. The, the photo booth with three Spider-Men pointing at each other? Uh, no, behind it. It's one of those retractable floor banner things. Oh! Yep, yeah, I see it. Meme expert AMA. Yeah, come on. All right. Excuse me. Pardon. Sorry. Uh, hello. Hello. How's it going? Good. Good. So, um, you're a meme expert? I mean, more than just memes. I have a PhD in folklore, and I'm the executive director of the Texas Folklore Society. Oh, these pins are so cool. Thanks. They're three for five. But to answer your question, yes, for today, I'm a meme expert. What's your name? Dr. Christina Downs. Nice to meet you. I'm Perry. Perry Carpenter. Oh, my God. I love these stickers, too. Oh, uh, sorry. Uh, hi, I'm Mason. Nice to meet you both. I've got a little bundle deal where if you buy a copy of my book, Advancing Folkloristics, I'll throw in three stickers and a pen for free. Hey, uh, I think I saw your name on the program earlier. Was that you that was doing the talk on memes and conspiracy? Yes, that was about the animal thefts at the Dallas Zoo. Did you like it? Yeah, um, well, no, uh, actually, we missed the whole thing. I think we walked by right as you were wrapping up. Ah. Hey, um, this may be a weird question, but would you maybe want to do a redo, like an encore, or take some questions that you didn't have time for? Because um, we have a presentation in about 10 minutes, and as it happens, we don't have anything ready to present. What? How did you manage that? It's complicated. No, it isn't. Perry just didn't want to pay for tickets. No, that's not exactly it. Um, we have... a podcast. It's actually a, a, f a folklore podcast, and that's why we're here in the first place. Okay. And you were planning on talking about... The current plan 
is that maybe we can find somebody here at the con and do like a uh, live interview on stage. And you're on in 10 minutes and you haven't gotten anyone yet. Basically, yeah. Look, I can appreciate that you've got yourself into a bit of a situation, but I have to stay here and man the booth. I think I'm gonna get these. The This Kato, Kato Critter pin is adorable. I love that one. Three pens, five bucks. Cool. Thank you. How much for the whole stock? Sorry? If we buy everything here, will that let you come to the presentation with us? That's... Hmm. We can do it like a panel. You know, all those people after your talk that wanted to ask you questions, you didn't have time, you had to come here, you can answer those from the stage. Hey, that could be fun. Perry and I could MC it. You could answer the questions. I mean, if you bought everything. I mean, obviously, if you don't want to or you don't feel comfortable, um, that that's okay. We're pretty good at winging things. Well, hang on. I did really wish I had more time for questions. And I mean, the main reason for the booth is just to raise money for the Texas Folklore Society. Okay. How about we buy up the entire value of your booth, but you can keep your merch, and then after the talk, you can come back. Hmm. You buy everything plus $500 because I'm saving your butts. We keep the merch and you give a shout out to the Texas Folklore Society on that little podcast of yours. Deal. Can can I still keep my pins? Yeah, obviously. Cool, awesome. Done. That should cover it. Perfect, we have a deal. Lead the way. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. Hey ya, Mason here. And I don't think I've mentioned it on the show before, but I have two cats, two big old boys named Chester and Cinders, and I love them both very much. But I didn't grow up with cats, and I've never suffered from general allergies like pollen, so it took me an embarrassingly long time to realize that I was allergic to them. No joke, when I started working from home, I would say things like, wow, I feel like I'm losing my voice every day, or isn't it weird, I can't breathe through my nose for some reason. Ultimately, it was my partner who said, that really sounds like allergies. And long story short, now I take a Claritin every day. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claret and clear. Use as directed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. How do we want to open this thing? Leave it to me. I need a good reason to justify the eight years I spent working in radio. Right. Hello. Hello, thank you. Thank you all for coming. My name is Mason Amadeus. This is Perry Carpenter. We're the hosts of the Digital Folklore Podcast. And today, we're going to sit down with Dr. Christina Downs. Now, I'm sure that some of you saw Christina's talk earlier. A round of applause if you were there before. Awesome, great, yes. Well, we have brought her back on stage to answer some of your questions, dive a little bit deeper on memes, conspiracy, news lore, and anything that might come up. Right now, let's welcome Dr. Downs to the stage. You. All right. Okay, so um, why don't we start off with you introducing yourself and what you do? 
My name is Dr. Christina Downs. I am the director of the Texas Folklore Society, and I'm also a professor at Tarleton State University. So let's talk a little bit about your talk. So you gave a talk about memes and uh, misconceptions and conspiracies about animal thefts from the Dallas Zoo. Can you give us some of the high points of that? And then I want to talk a little bit about what you were hoping that people would get out of that. In January of 2023, the Dallas Zoo, which is in Dallas, Texas, had a series of events that happened. It started with a clouded leopard being found out of her enclosure. And then it was discovered that her enclosure had been cut open deliberately, as had another enclosure at the zoo, the Lappet Monkeys, something. I'm probably getting that name. One of the monkey enclosures. Uh, Both of them had been cut open deliberately. The clouded leopard, her name was Nova. She was found safe and sound on the zoo grounds. She had actually snuck into another enclosure that was not in use at the time. She climbed into a cabinet and they found her when she went to emerge from this cabinet and a squirrel saw her and freaked out and they heard the squirrel's panicked sounds and realized, oh, something's going on and found her. So happy ending, the leopard's safe, but we know something has happened at the zoo that these two enclosures were cut. Then about a week later, endangered vulture was found deceased in its enclosure with a wound that was described as suspicious. People that examined it said that they didn't feel like it was a natural death. And then about a week after that, two of the emperor tamarind monkeys were discovered missing from their enclosure. About two days later, they were recovered at an abandoned house where they found several other animals that were mostly domestic animals, things like cats, uh, birds, fish, as well as some things that had been stolen from employee-only areas at the zoo. At that point, the zoo released an image of a man that they thought was a suspect. That man was quickly found, I think about a day after that, at the Dallas Aquarium, where it's believed he was kind of looking to find more animals. Turns out it was a 24-year-old man named Davion Irvin. A lot of the theories as all this was going on were these really elaborate things involving animal rights activists or animal traffickers, or, you know, something targeting the zoo. He just liked animals and said he wanted to keep them all as pets. He admitted that if he was let go, he would probably steal more animals. Uh, One of the other kind of absurd things that came out was that he was using public transportation for all of these events. And in fact, had taken the monkeys home with him on the dart, which is our light rail in the Dallas area. (laughs) And Apparently no one noticed the man with the two monkeys on the dart train late at night. Yeah, you'd think that there'd be some great surveillance photos from that. Yeah, right. If there are, I've never seen them released. They've only released the images of him kind of skulking around the zoo. But as you can imagine, there was a lot of social media response to all of these events. One of the big comical things was that the announcement that the zoo was closed said it's a code blue, which means a non-dangerous animal out of its enclosure. And then when they released that it was a clouded leopard, people immediately heard leopard and thought, in what world is a leopard a non-dangerous animal? Well, it turns out that a clouded leopard is a completely different species than what we think of when we think of as leopards. And fully grown, a female clouded leopard is about 25 pounds, not that much bigger than an average house cat. Well, maybe bigger than an average house cat. It's not that much bigger than my house cats. (laughs) We also saw some people uh, starting accounts from the leopard's perspective. There were two that were alleging to be the clouded leopard tweeting her adventures. And one of them was very um, cute. She was like, did you guys know that there's a whole pond here at the zoo that's stocked with waterfowl? I'll be back after a quick meal. And she, you know, tweeted some things about the other animals. And she was overall being a little chaotic, but overall sweet. The other 
Nova Twitter account was very aggressive. It always tweets in all caps. It kept going for a while after she was recaptured and uh, would say things like, I'm being detained against my will. Someone call me a lawyer. (laughs) She uh, had a lot of tweets directed at a zookeeper named Wendy, who, as best I can tell, is a fictional construct. I hope she is. Otherwise, I feel very bad for Wendy. (laughs) But there's a lot of, hey, Wendy, what did Leopard say when you uh, left her cage unlocked? Nothing, because I was already halfway to Mexico. (laughs) For Valentine's Day, she tweeted a poem that was like, roses are red. Rosé is trendy. I'm escaping tonight. Go to hell, Wendy. <laughs> so she kind of kept going. And she responded to the other animal events, too. Uh, when the monkeys escaped, it was, you know, the escapes will continue until morale improves. And that was really where I started getting interested in what was going on. Of course, that day, I happened to be sitting at my computer and start seeing these things on Twitter and going, wait, what's going on at the Dallas Zoo? And thinking, as folklorists often do, I don't know what's going on here, but there's something going on here. So I'm just going to take a lot of screen caps and come back to this later. Mm-hmm. When the escape of the clouded leopard was first announced, the Jurassic Park official Twitter account just retweeted the Dallas Zoo's tweet about an escaped animal with kind of the big eyes emoji. Like, wait. And then, of course, immediately people picked up on this. Like, Jurassic Park is like, where have I seen this before? That's why we have the internet, though, right? Exactly. It is, it is those kind of interactions and then the fact that people make Twitter accounts from the perspective of those and yeah. refuse to let the joke die long after most people would in polite conversation. And in the midst of this, of course, the zoo is saying we have increased security measures. We've added cameras. We The Dallas PD is helping us with this. And it seemed to not be doing any good. And people were getting frustrated. And you saw more and more. And then these sort of rumors that were then being taken as truth. You know, a lot of, well, I talked to somebody who knows somebody who works at the zoo, and they said this is definitely an inside job. When the leopard was missing, interestingly, of course, because she was caught within less than 12 hours, I think, of going missing. But there was someone that was uh, I found on Twitter who was insisting that the night before, she had been in Arlington, Texas, and that several people had caught her on their Ring doorbell cameras. Okay. Obviously, that didn't happen. I don't know what they caught on their Ring doorbell cameras. We do have podcasts and mountain lions in Texas, so it could have been. Who knows? But we saw a lot of discussion of, of I keep saying human trafficking. It's animal trafficking. But I think the reason I'm getting mixed up is because it follows so many of the patterns that we see with legends of human trafficking nowadays, which yeah. I think today... It's not a brand new thing, certainly, these anxieties over human trafficking. Um, there's a folklorist named Bill Ellis who's done a really great study showing that in the early 20th century, there were all these panics over human trafficking, that girls were getting abducted from ice cream parlors. Yeah. Ice cream parlors were these dangerous places for young w- ladies of good standing to go. And now it's like the dressing room of Target. And obviously, human trafficking is a very real and very serious problem that it's good that people be more aware of. But what it looks like is not middle-class white women being abducted from the Target dressing room. Yeah, and it's it's not like uh, coded language in a Wayfair catalog either, right? Right, exactly. Unfortunately, there are much easier ways for human traffickers to find and traffic their victims. As I would imagine, there's much easier ways for animal traffickers to get animals than to break into a zoo. Yeah, right. But it's interesting how similar those things looked in the discourse of like, this has to be animal trafficking. And, um, you know, I hear animal trafficking is this big, you know, moneymaker and that they're everywhere and the same kind of ways that people talk about human trafficking. Interesting. And then, of course, it turned out to be this really mundane answer, which as someone who studies the intersections of crime and legend, that's how often 
things in the crime world work. Like often the people tend to, to use another animal metaphor, uh, hear hoofbeats and think zebras rather than horses. It's, it's really usually just horses. It's usually the mundane thing, not the exotic thing. And here it was, I was just a kid who, though I'm in no position to actually give a diagnosis, seems to maybe have been suffering from some mental health issues mm -hmm. and just really liked animals. Yep. And then, of course, people were hesitant to accept that. Yeah, because you you assume in that because of the just the way our you know mental framing works is there must be a criminal mastermind, right? And he doesn't look or present like a criminal mastermind. And forget the fact that the leopard was recovered within twelve hours and never was actually stolen. Yeah, and also you mentioned earlier that there was an an endangered vulture that died. Did they ever figure out what happened there? If they have, I have not been able to find. A official cause given. What they have said is that they do not believe that Davion Irvin, the man um, arrested in connection with the monkeys and the um, leopard, they don't believe he was involved in the vulture's death. So okay. enough of a question mark for somebody with the right mindset to, to still tag that on to the monkey thefts that he was confirmed for and some of the other things that were stolen. And right. But at the same time, there's this cognitive dissonance that they have to have because of the state of the house and everything where they found all the animals, trying to think that that's Something that belongs to a criminal mastermind doesn't totally make sense, right? So I'm I'm curious how much actual growth of a conspiracy you sort of saw. Like how many people genuinely believe this was some kind of an inside job? It's hard to quantify like how much it grew in terms of, you know, numbers. Of course, I'm just looking at tweets and I looked a little bit at Reddit also. And yeah. The Dallas subreddit and some discussions there. It certainly came up a lot, uh, these ideas of, you know, there's got to be some kind of conspiracy and that again, didn't end necessarily right when he was caught. It was sort of a, well, who is he really working for? Or I don't believe this. He's a patsy. You know, there's just setting up this poor kid because he's not going to be able to have any kind of defense. And, you know, it's really something much more shadowy and sinister. There were a lot of accusations against Sue employees also, <clears throat> many of which connected either with the idea of it being animal traffickers. I'd say PETA got blamed a lot as well. I gathered there had been some kind of event with PETA in Dallas about a week before uh, these events all started. So it was immediately like, okay, well, they were here a week before. So obviously... They're trying to break all the animals free, right? Yeah. yeah, Right. Again, because that's definitely the most efficient way they could go about this. And is, is even by their definition, would that be the most ethical thing to, to put them in a house with all these other <laughs> animals? No, I don't think so. Right. Um, so it, um, it, it all of it kind of breaks down the whenever you add critical thinking to it, but there's, I think, very little critical thinking and the knee-jerk reaction as we start to see these these uh, data dots line up and figure out what the straight line looks like with a uh, potentially inaccurate context. You know, they say humans are predisposed to recognize patterns to the point that we sometimes see patterns where they don't exist. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the things about like seeing a face in a grilled cheese sandwich or, you know, whatever, some of these things. But I think sometimes we do that in a narrative sense also. We want to take events that don't make any sense and put them in a narrative pattern that we can make sense of. And so when you have these pre-existing legends about, again, going back to the human trafficking thing, there probably are legends about animal trafficking. I'm not as familiar with those, but we can certainly superimpose the, the legends about animal trafficking into these pre-existing stories about human trafficking and then take actual current events and put them into a narrative so we can kind of start to make sense of it. And I think even some of the popular culture references that we saw, it's trying to 
take something that doesn't make any sense and find a pattern that we can put it into to make sense out of it. Yeah. So how does this story wrap up then? Is there any conclusion or moral of the story as you think about the the research and kind of the state of events as they sit today? What are your thoughts? In terms of the actual, you know, wrap up, the last I looked, Davion Irvin is in custody um, and being charged with several counts of animal endangerment and animal cruelty, I think is what he's being charged with. Mm. Forget exactly how many charges he's not, as I said, being charged in relation to the vulture's death. I don't think he's come to trial yet. At least the last time I looked, he hadn't. I don't know if a court date's been set. And of course, the Dallas Zoo says that they have taken precautions. I've read some articles that are saying, you know, this is a thing that all zoos should kind of take a look at and all of them should learn from it. One thing I didn't mention, sorry. No, you're good. Jumping around, but at the time that all of this was going on, there were also 12 monkeys that were stolen from a zoo in Louisiana. And the culprit was caught in that as well. I don't know as much about what happened there other than immediately when it happened, everyone's assumption was this has to be connected, right? Texas and Louisiana are right next to each other. And especially if you're not familiar with how big Texas is, because these two zoos are not actually anywhere near each other. Yeah. But Texas and Louisiana do share a border. And so the immediate assumption was, oh, this has to to all be the same person. And it was not. As far as how, you know, kind of what the takeaways are, I think the biggest thing is just keep in mind that the Truth is often the most mundane answer, not the not the most exotic answer. It's often very simple. It's often way less grandiose. It's not an international network of animal traffickers. It, it's just a guy that liked animals. You see that a lot with, and again, dealing with true crime stories. You see this a lot where a case will be unsolved for decades and decades. Another Texas case, there was a woman named Lori Erica Russ who, after she was deceased, it turned out that that was not her actual name and they realized that she had changed her name at least twice during her lifetime but nobody knew what her real birth name was what her real birth identity was and why she had gone to such lengths to hide her identity and there were a lot of you know really elaborate conspiracy theories that she had been part of a terrorist group or she'd been part Mm. of a cult or she was related to the LeBarons who are a LDS offshoot group that's been involved in a lot of violence and it turns out she was just a teenage runaway that had maybe suffered some abuse as a teenager and just run off. Tragic, but something that happens a lot, right? When there's a lack of information, people will fill it in and often fill it in with something that's much more elaborate. I love the point that you made about the fact that truth is usually the the simplest and most direct answer, kind of the Occam's razor piece of this. Yeah, and I think that's about our time. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Thank you, Dr. Christina Downs. One more round of applause. Thank you, Christina, for sharing your knowledge. Make sure you check out the Texas Folklore Society booth out there on the vendor floor. And listen to the Digital Folklore Podcast. All right. Thank you. Hey, Christina, thank you so much again for helping us out in a pinch. No problem. It actually ended up being pretty fun. And more than triple the cost of tickets. Well, you should have thought about that before you booked a speaking gig without having anything to speak about. I mean, that's fair. It's never about the money. Plus, it went to a great cause. Thank you both. I'm headed back to the booth, but if you're ever in Texas, swing by Tarleton State University and say hi. Yeah, for sure. Will do. I am wiped. Do you still want to go to that MPC thing? No. No, I think I'm good. That might be too much for me at this point, honestly. I wouldn't mind just headed back. Yeah, same. You want to hit the cafe on the way out? Oh, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, they have um, what they are calling macaroni with the chicken strips. 
and <laughs> I want to know how people with grammar that bad can cook something that may be good. Wait, you don't wait. So you haven't seen that? No. Um, uh, this is the TikTok sound as a kid. Macaroni with the chicken strips. With the chicken strips. Yeah, yeah. No, he gets it. No. <laughs> And never do that again. Oh man, do they take cards? Um, it says they take Dogecoin. Oh, I don't have any Dogecoin. Or doggy coin. Thanks for listening to Digital Folklore. Special thanks to our guests this episode. Dr. Christina Downs from the Texas Folklore Society and Josh Chapdelaine from Digital Void. You can find links to their work in the show notes. And thanks to our voice actors for this episode. The loudspeaker voice was Jace at JaceVO.com, who's also part of our Discord server. The Expo employee was Eli Chambers, who also composed our theme music. The sketchy meme dealer was Ty V from Side Character Quest. And additional background voices were done by Tucker Bettys, Aidy, Jordan Reed, and Lindsay Reed. You can find their links in the show notes as well. If you have time, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to tell people in your folk group about Digital Folklore, the podcast. Digital Folklore is a production of Eighth Layer Media, which is an offshore shell company for laundering immense amounts of illicit funds, including cryptocurrency and counterfeit bills. No, no, stop. We literally can't afford to joke like that. Right, sorry. Eighth Layer Media is a completely legitimate, ordinary LLC. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Both in trouble. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you soon. Maybe. Maybe. Hey. Yeah? Um, I don't want to harp on this, but I still really don't feel right about that DVD. What? What what are you talking about? The, um, the DVD, the one we found in here, the Shazam. Oh, Oh, this again. Okay. Uh, no, I, I swear that is not supposed to exist. It is mm. the other way around. Harry, you realize that is literally what the Mandela effect no, no, is, right? No, 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 I know, I know how it sounds, but I can't explain it, but I am 100% sure that this is not right. It's Shazam. Unless someone went through the trouble of having the top of this DVD professionally printed for a fake movie. People have done more than that before. One way to find out... Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.